Hey everybody, welcome to Outspoken. I am your host, Justin White, and I've been away for a little while, and um, somewhat abruptly, and I apologize for that and for the lack of communication about it. Um, I'll tell you all about that another time. Uh, This time, I wanted to dedicate this episode um, to, uh, well, I want to say a friend. I don't think that he would consider me a friend. I think he probably mostly tolerated me. Um, He, I think, would consider my brother a friend, and definitely my friend Aaron was one of his best friends. Uh, the, the person I'm talking about is Bruce Bickford. And, um, I, I had the honor to interview him last year, last summer. And, um, he, uh, he passed away a couple months ago, uh, the end of April and, um, this year. So I wanted to, uh, today was actually the memorial service for Bruce and, um, I wasn't there, but my brother was, my friend Aaron was. Some of his other close friends were. Um, and I wanted to just replay this episode, my, my interview with Bruce from last year, um, in his honor, in memoriam, um, just as a tribute to a legend, a legendary man. His, uh, his artwork is like none I've ever seen or will ever see again, I think. And um, it's... It's somewhat tragic how much of it has not been seen by almost anyone. Um, It's some of the most brilliant animation, mostly clay animation, some 2D drawn, but endless, endless stories, and um, only a fraction of them were ever produced by him because he was working alone for all those years. Um, But anyway... I'll tell you more about how to find his work if you don't already know it. The man Bruce Bickford um, is was one of a kind, and I was truly, truly privileged and honored to have spent even a little bit of time with him. Um, so please enjoy this interview from uh, 2018, and um, I'll talk to you again at the end. Yeah, it was a guy I knew at Venice Beach when I was working for Zappa in the 70, starting 74. And this guy was a medical student and an athlete. He, he wanted to write a book about human performance. And he was a super athlete. I mean, really strong, but he was just a little guy, about 135 pounds, and he wanted to have one, at least one professional uh, fight 
in the ring. He wanted, wanted to, he was training to be a boxer. And he was a real no-nonsense guy. And I, one day I was making these clay figures at the beach, and he, he was telling me I had brains in my hands. And he says there, he knew a lot about neurological stuff, and he was going to be a brain surgeon, or he, that was his goal. But he flunked chemistry when he was in uh, the medical school in Guadalajara. He got kicked out, but he said he knew chemistry better than any of them, and he probably did. But he, he said when there's nerves in, in your body and they connect with your brain. And sometimes if, if you have the right um, kind of moves, if, if you can make certain moves with your hands, it gets to be automatic because the, the, uh, the, the nerves are connected to your brains that are in your fingers. So essentially you have brains in your hands and you, you don't even have to think about doing certain moves once you've started because your fingers just do them automatically by touch, knowing where the next movement has to be. He, I guess he was equating this to me twisting up these little you know, inch and a half tall clay figures that had musculature and right. uh, structure and everything to them. And so he said, you, it's like with any athlete, they, you think movement and automatically blood goes to the particular muscles you're gonna have to use. Mm -hmm. And so you, um, you do things automatically without having to tell the muscles to, to do them. Uh, I, I'm sure it's more complicated than that. Right, than, but when he said I'm, that to you, it made sense to register as something that... Well, it made, it made as much sense as anything else I've heard on the subject. I've never heard stuff like that from anyone else. And, mm -hmm. And I haven't heard about that since, but um, he, he said that, well, there was another muscle man at the beach, an old-time muscle man, not, not one that takes steroids or just tries to build up bulk, you know, fancy muscles. This guy was real compact, real uh, basic, and said at one time he'd been one of the strongest men in the world. The guy named uh, Doug Jamie, the, the mountain man. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> he said he could, from a crouch, he could leap clear over these bleachers they had there at the Muscle Beach. Really? Uh, and it was, a, it looked to be about 30 feet. Uh, just spring out? Spring yeah, out that's, uh, and another guy, a guy who was really built, another one of the old-time strong men, 
was talking about this, and this was a guy who would never joke or exaggerate anything. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure it was true. And uh, my friend said that, that that mountain man guy, he would he was a contemplator. He he could he'd think about doing a certain thing till he was hyped up enough, and then he'd do it. Hmm some fantastic move and I'd seen him do things like doing uh, doing push-ups on his thumbs uh-huh. with a 50 pound weight on his back and at, at one time he, he'd been able to do push-ups on just on his forefinger just two fingers and you watched him do this? No, I, I didn't see him do that. I okay. saw him do it on, on his thumbs, which would be a little bit easier, but... Not that easy. Um, but having brains in your hands, you, you could have brains in any part of your body, I suppose. was hippie land mm-hmm. uh, most of much of it was it, it's gone totally upscale since then right and where did you stand on hippies at the time oh I, I probably was one okay uh, probably looked like one and did you feel at home yeah. there in Venice um, it was much better than living in deeper in LA because at least there, there was often times an offshore blow of, of some a breeze coming from the ocean which pushed the, uh, the smog back mm-hmm. over the land. So but, you actually had a clear sky But when sometimes the, the wind would stop and then the, the, the cloud of smog that was L.A. just would go mushrooming out in all directions, out to sea. Mm-hmm. And then you'd be screwed until it started, uh, still the wind started blowing from the, the west again. So sometimes there'd just be like a yellow cloud hovering over? Venice. Oh yeah, it was, it was, um, oh, well that inversion layer stuff. Right. So even in 74, it was a smoggy place, huh? Oh, it, it was terrible back then. When I moved down there, I, it, uh, it was something I just never got used to. Mm-hmm. It was terrible all through the 70s. It's, it's much improved now. Because I mean, of vehicle emissions? It, yeah, that, that was probably mainly it. They, uh, they cleaned up the cars. Right. The, the smog was the worst part. Mm-hmm. But then in uh, 78, I got a place out in Topanga Canyon, and that was much better. 
but it was it wasn't nothing was ever really practical setting up a studio um it was a little too far from LA to commute easily mm -hmm. but it was a, a a better living environment for sure how so and, <clears throat> Just a nicer it's place to more live. easy going, mm. not uh, not as much uh, confusion, uh, not as much noise, not not much noise, and interesting people, and uh, a lot of hippies down. I was in Old Canyon, mm -hmm. the the branch, this uh, north branch of the the creek, and. Down by the creek bed, there were a lot of hippies living in this row of uh, smaller houses, and and they even had a, a newspaper, the local newspaper. It was called Creek Rat, <laughs> and uh, deep down in the the deepest part of the canyon, down towards the beach. Well, a couple of miles above the beach, but uh, below the little village of Topanga, mm -hmm. the canyon was, uh, it, it was just very rocky high walls and fantastic rock formations everywhere. And I, I would just go down there and hike around for hours just because there was everything to trip out on uh -huh. the the creek and the little the way that it flowed over rocks and stuff and and you're uh, you're a bit of an adventurer right you like to climb well, and well and i'm i'm no adventurer well not anymore but i but in your in your I, heart that's sort of yeah i like i loved climbing things mm -hmm. me too and uh I, I wish I could still do that. I'm just over the hill. I'm not. I, I'm not not the physical guy anymore. Yeah. But you used to do a lot. I mean, I, I, I've seen I've seen video of you climbing, very tall trees to the very top, and I don't think that was all that many years ago. Well, back in when I was a teenager. I was probably the best tree climber in the county. I, I'm just guessing. No, it wasn't. A, it wasn't a sport. Right. It wasn't. I was no good at any kind of sports in mm -hmm. school. In fact, I, I was the worst, the most uncoordinated. Mm -hmm. But I found, figured out at pretty early that I was able to climb trees, and I, I worked on that. Nice. So you remember actually sort of uh, trying to foster your abilities and practice and get really good at it or well just... yeah sure I try. but there's limits to everything it, it, uh, I, I guess I was more interest, more deeply interested in making things with clay and doing animation and drawing right. how early and did that that start for you oh I, I started animation in 70 or no 64 yeah, 1964. You started it, you know, I mean, as a career, or, or would you no, just, just, just start doing, doing it. it? But as it turned out, I kind of just 
didn't ever work much at a regular job, and I've, I've never been good at making money. Mm -hmm. And I just, when the job with Zappa ended, I came back up here to Seattle, and well, right where I am right now, and my, my mom let me set up in the basement for doing animation, and so I just resumed doing it and didn't have to support myself, really. Right. I, my parents helped out. And you just worked all the time? Uh, yeah, as much as possible. And did you have, I mean, do you want to talk about the Zappy years, or is that, oh. I mean, well, or just <laughs> breeze through it, or just... Or is it a sore spot? We can, I, we can leave it. Oh, Eb, look, life is a sore spot. That's true. For some people, some people have a have a great easy life. Other people, because of flaky things they do in life, they it becomes more difficult. Yeah. The biggest mistake I made with Zappa was I, I should have demanded from him that I I get to direct the movie we mm -hmm. were supposedly making. Baby snakes. Yeah, because basically he uh, didn't have a clue. I correct. mean, if you if you examine if if you have the guts to examine baby snakes and <laughs> see how, uh, uh, it should be apparent to anybody that a lot of that stuff was just bottom of the I'm scraped off the bottom of the garbage can right I mean he like just wasting time he see he had this I think from being on stage all those years and goofing off and playing the audience and just it, taking and taking advantage of the audience and being indulgent mm -hmm. in front of all those people. He had the idea he could do that in a movie also. I see. Like he has things where he says, oh, and now our road manager is going to tell you about uh, such and such with, with all the rest of the band running interference over him. So he has the road manager talking and then he, everyone else starts yakking and all around him, just a cacophony, and uh, just um, the poorest excuse for entertainment. Mm -hmm. And or him holding up a, a toy cop car by his head and, and repeatedly turning his head towards it, and or, that or, or going on about a a, a, a toy poodle. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, or walking on down the stage talking about how God created man and woman mm -hmm. with the most sardonic, just, uh, or no, just just a, a spiteful look on his face, like, hey, I, now it's my turn to to be obnoxious yeah, and, and to look down on. And I, he would look. I. I I, I've, I've had my ups and downs with Frank I, yeah. over the years. Just, just think I, I was never around him that much. But just thinking about him and everything, he, he was great. Mm -hmm. As far as music goes, he was one of the greatest. Mm -hmm. 
but <laughs> he wasn't great in all areas. That's what I've heard. And it's so I mean, I, I'd rather just appreciate him for, for the good things. Well, that's good. Because he, uh, boy, talking about a guy having brains in his hands, he, well, he had something going on. That's for sure. He seemed to be channeling something, you know, from another world. Because to be able to compose music on instruments you've never played, is that's some kind of crazy gift, I think, to, to have a deep enough understanding that you could just write yeah, a and, symphony, but, basically. But as far, as far as I was concerned, I mean, uh, on my own level, I, I should have insisted right at the beginning that I get to direct the movie right. and that we have a few things like a, a production manager. Because I got... I, I went astray so often making clay figures that never got used mm. during that period. You needed somebody and, to rein it in. And, oh yeah, uh, I needed I, I need a little management. Yeah. I need some control, and I, <laughs> I still do. Because you'll get lost in the world? And, and Writing these graphic <laughs> novels, I've just gone on and on with... Um, and, a lot of the time, I just didn't want to finish. Yeah. I because it would mean a shift of activity. It would mean doing something uh, awkward, like starting a new project. Right. <laughs> and it, where it's harder. safe and easy to just keep on sitting there drawing. Right. And I'm. Uh, I. I. Uh, it, in my old age here, I'm 71. I, I still haven't gotten past a lot of these infantile um, um, modes of uh, existence. seventies. Okay. I got out of the service in sixty nine and I, I was just working in the basement here. Mm -hmm. And um 
And then in about 71, I started doing line animation, d d line drawings. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've done a lot of that over the years. M much of it hasn't even been put to use yet. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it needs the soundtracks and things. Or I could just put all of it together into a, a movie. Mm -hmm. Maybe even expand it into a feature length thing. Yeah. It'd be nice to be able to do that the right way, the way that you'd like to do it. And, uh, but uh, mainly I want to be in the movie business. You do? And I've got a few ideas. Every, every time I hear some interview or something with a people in the business, I, I feel like if the person seems like I could get along with them, I feel like uh, trying to get in touch with them mm -hmm. and propose, do a pitch of one of my stories, a proposal for, for a feature movie, because all these stories I have in my files here are on <clears throat> the related movie related ideas okay you you can you can envision that they, they could be form. graphic novels or just novels or any kind of story but my original intention with almost all of them was to to make a movie idea a, a treatment mm -hmm. and if you were if something like that were to be picked up would you, I mean, my understanding is that you've always been the only one who does the animation, right? You do, you do all of it, every all the hands-on, right? Well, I could use other animators. You would, okay. No, I'd have no problem with that. But you would do the, you would be making the figures if it, if it were clay, or you would it, be doing the drawings. E everything is, is uh, everything's adjustable. Okay. If you have people that can do things, then... That's okay uh, to use them. Yeah. Nice. As long as it all fits into an overall style. Mm -hmm. I figure there's three things it takes to make a movie. Content, technique, and style. Okay. And the content is physically, what do you have there? Your, your, uh, actors your sets your story mm -hmm. all this all that stuff the solid stuff right technique is what you do with the cameras and the sound what what um technology can get the the effects and the um the movements and everything you need and style is the thing that holds it all together that makes it work okay so content technique and style and if you're missing any one of those it, it won't be a good movie mm-hmm and you're saying that goes for any movie for or for specifically oh, well for that's that's just basic i mean you yeah. you could add a number of other um things to that Right, but that's the that's the fundamental needs. Well, in in my in my way of thinking, that those are the three most basic things you're gonna need. Mm-hmm. And how do you how? So the style comes from the individual artist, right? 
I mean, it, it seems like the other well, the, well, the ov- content, comes the from overall there. vision yeah. that makes scenes, whole scenes together, and creates a point of view. I mean, some some directors just more or less set the camera up and let it run, mm-hmm. and to me that's unsatisfying. It's it's minimalistic and it shows that they don't really have much to say. Right. It's a fairly flat perspective. If you if you can move the camera around to get different points of view, it then there's where you're going into depth where you're you're drawing the viewer in and getting them involved with the material. Right. Working on a story, sometimes I'm not thinking in terms of a theme. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking in terms of imagery and a flow of action. But before I get very far with it, a theme might evolve. And then I realize what the story's really about. And I can't give you a real example of this. I, in all these stories in my files there, there, many of them are things that just evolved from some, I, some idea or some image. You can make a story about almost anything. Like once back you know, 20 years ago, I was out walking down the driveway at night, and there was a, the moon was out, and there was a mist in the air, a slight, a, a faint fog, and there was the moon beams were coming through the trees, through the gaps in the branches and leaves and stuff, and. Looking at those moon beams, I was think just wondering thinking what, what, what that moonlight must have meant to people back in 1956, you know, 40 years earlier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I, it just came to me, this, I thought, oh God, those are days. And that became a title of one of my stories, Th- those days. Okay about a guy who goes through, a guy, a gopher in the CIA, uh-huh. just a nobody, but an important guy, a mover and shaker, because he, he, they rely on him for things they can't figure out. And eventually he has to get away from them. He, does, he doesn't like it. <laughs> he goes on a hero's journey, and which is kind of a hackneyed term for a, what he was doing, but he he eventually got to a place where he got closer to figuring out the secrets of the universe. And it's ri- I've got that story written out, most of it. The, the, the last 10 pages of it got lost, mm-hmm. but I've got about 70 pages there, and I want to finish it up sometime. And you know the ending already? Oh yes, I've I've got the I've got the first draft still. It's just that the transcribed part okay. part part of that got lost. I see. And so, well, that, I think that's what I was getting at with the theme, because 
you know, you, you've mentioned both the, the hero's journey and the sort of the nobody aspect of the, of the protagonist, you know, the sort of, I feel like there's sort of an underdog thing that goes on in a lot of your work. Oh, well, there's a lot, in a lot of my stories, the, the main character is basically me if I was better than I am or luckier or more competent. Okay. And that, so that's when they're, as the stories are developing, you, you sort of embody one of the characters or do you, do you move around from character to character? Does it, uh, does it operate like that? Or is it well, you, you have to figure out every character. Mm -hmm. you, have to, you have to do their thinking so because time, they're not going to do it for you. That's true. So, so do you feel like, every, I mean, there, you have clips that are 10 seconds long that have 100 characters in them, right? Are there examples of that well, where you're just yeah, doing probably. so There's, much activity? Well, when I, went, when I first showed my stuff to Zappa back in 73, mm -hmm. when I went down there early that year to look for work in L.A., mm -hmm. and when I finally got to him and I showed him the, like the big barroom scene right. um, with all the guys hassling around, uh -huh. Uh, after seeing it, Frank said, well, he, he was impressed with uh, how many figures I could have sustained in animation at the same time. Mm -hmm. And he says, uh, must be a world record. <laughs> and that was, you know, a few weeks later, or a week and a half later, I was still in L.A., and I... I was showing my stuff to some film buffs, and there was one guy, Bob Greenberg, who was like a preeminent film buff in L.A., mm -hmm. who, who knew just about everything about movies, and he said he was, he'd always been a fanatic about camera movements, and he was talking about that same scene, the barroom scene, mm -hmm. and he said that, um, my camera movements, whether they worked or not, they, uh, I had the most ambitious camera movements of anyone in the world. Wow. So, jeez, two, <laughs> two, two world records within a week and a half. Not bad. Where's the Gu where was Guinness when this was going down? That, well, so that's what I was going to ask about. Like, when you have a scene with that many characters in it, and you're animating each one of them, each time you move the camera, or every time you snap a shot, are you thinking, like, as you move around from character to character, are you, are you getting back into the, you know, this, this guy, here's his backstory. Well, you, you, you have to, I, I would usually take it in, like, a, a circuit. I would, if I'm animating 20 figures at once, mm -hmm. I would go one at a time around a circle of the whole group and then get the guys in the middle. Okay. But do them each frame in the same order. Right. So I wouldn't leave anyone out. And each time I'd get to each particular figure, I would I could see what he was doing, what kind of move he'd make, and I'd I'd he'd I would just 
have to um, just make a well, subtle adjustment. Yeah, adjust each figure individually for his own particular movement. So I'd have to think for each one of those figures every frame, 24 right. frames a second. <laughs> and I, you know, the reason I'm doing graphic novels right now is because I kind of. I kind of had to take a break from the animating mm -hmm. because it's the most difficult thing I know about. It seems like it's just incredibly laborious. Like, I mean, even if you love what you're doing, the amount of just the technical meticulousness that you need to, to get it right. Uh, I mean, for me, just the time consuming nature of it would, would drive me bananas because I would want to be doing more, well you more, have more, to more have faster. before you can do animation you have to have the time to do it right and a lot if of you're if you're doing a working at a regular job doing uninteresting work you, you're gonna by the end of the day you're kind of burned out and you're not you don't have much energy left to do your animation yeah I think you, you've got to you've got to get some way of um, a place to work or some someone to finance you. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's, uh, how how can people survive if they're hassling with everyday getting food on the table and a roof over their head. Mm -hmm. yeah, a, How can you do anything else than... <laughs> so it, I, I get, I've just been lucky that I haven't had the... Um, I, I still have to, in daily life, I still have to do a lot of things I don't want to because, you know, the, the daily... Just, the daily grind, get, getting everything, like in this place where I'm, place where I grew up, where, where I still am, mm -hmm. it, it takes that tremendous amount of upkeep to keep a, a house running. Right. To keep it from falling apart. That's true, yeah. And so I, there's a ton of that stuff I have to take care of. Right, and don't want to, and it and, takes time. But I've still had a leftover time to do my what I want to do.
when I moved back here from LA in 81, uh, it wasn't very long before we started having a really brutal series of murders up here. It was called the Green River Killer case, and it all centered right around this area, it seemed like. I mean, the first, the first victims were last seen at this little Three Bears Motel right down by the highway there, about a mile away by, as the crow flies. Mm. And then they were vanishing from the airport strip and the first victims were found in the Green River down in the valley there on the way to Kent. Okay. And then they were being found along the, the woods uh, south of the airport. And was this over a span of like days or weeks? Oh, or no, months this or was years. Years. Se- several years. But it was all happening in this same area? Yeah. Okay. And they didn't know how to stop it and because they didn't know who was they they were well they had it they had a suspect which turned out to be the real guy but they didn't do anything about it I think they the guy running the Green River Task Force died in a scuba accident and that kind of uh, threw him off like stalled track. the whole, whole thing. And the guy, the actual killer, went on in freedom for another, what, 20 years? Really? It yeah. continued Same, serial well, killing? Quite a while. Wow. But during those days when when that guy was running loose, I, it was a scary kind of time around here. It sounds like it'd be terrifying. And, <clears throat> Because uh, girl, girls were being grabbed from the airport strip, and uh, one one guy tried to get me in his car up on the bridge over the freeway, just just up Military Road from here. And you were how old? You know when? Oh, I was growing. This this was this was during. Probably seventy four, maybe. Oh, okay. No, I'd say seventy three. But <clears throat> this guy was a maniac. He, I, and when you're on a bridge, where can you go? You can go forward or backward or over the side. Right. And, <laughs> and this guy pulls up and he's yelling, "Get in! Get in the car! Get in the car!" And and he it looked, I was just seeing him through the dirty side window on his car, and he, 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 there was a strange kind of mark on his face. And then he, he opens, he reaches over, opens the door and pushes it open, and he's demanding I get in his car. He's saying, get in the fucking car. Mm. Come on, I'm not a queer. And, and that's when I saw him with the door open, you know, not just through the dirty window. Then I saw that mark on his face. It was running vertically from between his 
his right eye, or no, between his left eye and his nose, it, it was a gouge, it was a big gash. Uh -huh. It was about an inch and a half, or well, an inch and a quarter long, and about an eighth of an inch wide. Was it a and scar or was it no, an open it was wound? Fresh. It was like a fresh. It was. Okay. It wasn't bleeding. I mean, he'd gone home and changed his shirt and right. washed up. But it was a fresh cut. It, wa it wasn't. It wasn't scabbed over yet. It was bright, livid red inside that thing. Yikes. It was deep, and so I mean, someone had had really uh, gouged him, mm -hmm. and. Um, I just pushed his door shut, and I noticed the the seat belt was hanging out that side, like someone had just made a getaway mm. from the same car. <laughs> it's terrifying. And then he drove on, and I I went I turned around, went back this direction from the off of the bridge, and as, at the end of the bridge, I looked down at the freeway, and he had drove up north to the other on-ramp and he would here he was going south on the freeway mm. and <clears throat> uh, I called the Green River Task Force about that guy because uh, I just thought they should know and they, the, the woman who answered she she was giving me some leading questions about this guy so I know they were well familiar with him Wow. So she said, was he short? Uh -huh. Was he white? <laughs> and it had me, I described him and everything, and they described the cut on his face and all that. I mean, obviously this guy had been on a roll, just driving around terrorizing everyone that day. <laughs> wow. So, so is that was that him or you? Th no, you th that, that you wasn't the guy. That definitely wasn't the guy. Okay. Because he, when he came out later, um, he very, very distinctly different and okay. in every way. And you know, my younger brother went to school with that guy down at Tai High School there. With and the Green River Killer? Yeah. Wow. Did he say Guys anything? Guys I know knew him. Did they, any of them say anything about what the, he was like the people, then? People I know knew him. Mm -hmm. and said he seemed normal then. They thought his brother was the nutcase. Uh-huh. Uh, but it, it, during that same, during the period when that stuff was going on or when it was just peaking, mm -hmm. I, I was on, I was walking up near that same bridge at night and I noticed a stench over the over the side of the hill there, where it, the hill, the woods sloped down towards the Kent Valley, and I noticed something that just smelled horrible. I mean, it was a, some animal. I thought, oh, it's just a dog, and then I thought, could be a, a victim, mm. could be a Green River victim, and I should have called them on it. I mean, I should have called the task force, because it wouldn't have hurt. Mm. And I think it's it, it was it was a, such a a powerful smell. I mean, no one's gonna throw a dead dog over the bank there. Doesn't seem likely. Uh, 
And so that, that might have been one case they could have cleared up, one, one of the missing people they never found. I'm sorry I didn't uh, call them about it. Well, I don't think you can put that on yourself. I mean, <clears throat> how was he eventually caught? Oh, they had, they had a, a cotton swab that he, they had his saliva on it from, you know, 20 years before, and uh -huh. they finally got the means to test it. Wow. And then they just went to his house yeah. and collected him and locked him up? Is that... Yeah. Or, yeah, I, basically, I, I guess. <laughs> but at that time, everybody around here was just, I mean, wasn't there just sort of a steady panic or a steady oh, not, not anxiety? not a panic, yeah. but just kind of, kind of an uneasiness. But and you would still walk around? Even my, my brother, who was had extreme mental problems, was an alcoholic and was threatening to kill people. Mm. Uh, well, there's a lot of mental illness in my family. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sad to say, but my I was over at my neighbor's place next door here one night, and my my brother would always he he had to be drunk all the time okay. to do anything, and he would go down to this place down on 188, which was right there, go it's just up just east of the airport strip where the girls were vanishing. Mm -hmm. And he would go, my brother would go down to this one cafe down there regularly. It, it, it was a middle-class kind of, you know, diner. Okay. Not just a sleazy joint, but, right. you know, Green River or a, the airport strip prostitutes would probably stop there. Uh, but my neighbor, I was over at my neighbor's one night and he says, hey, I wonder if, wonder if Fred has anything to do with those girls. Because mm. he'd been hanging out down there, kind of near the strip. And man, it just hit me right then and it was just, uh, it just, thinking, what if? And it terrified me, and I was just, uh, I was so scared I was shaken. And then I, I, I went over to, uh, from my neighbor's place, I went over to the garage here where I had my animation scene set up, mm -hmm. where I was filming a thing. And I had the the big door on the side of the garage open, and I, it was at night, and I was just looking out there. It, it seemed humid. It seemed like I felt like I was in an aquarium or something. Mm. The air felt so thick. I felt like I was under water, or I was looking through water or something. Right. And just, just the idea that your brother could yeah, be the, the, guy. the vibes were so heavy that. You, you could you could slice off a piece of the vibes with a knife, uh -huh. just carve out a piece of the air and have some Green River vibes Yikes. right there. <laughs> well, that that was that was kind of the mood back then. Okay, but for years, what, because of one one jerk, one lunatic, yeah, 
just one guy was causing that much trouble. question that I'll ask on behalf of my brother uh, had, has to do with your the process the difference in the process between working in clay and working on in 2d well all I can say is it takes sometimes it takes a, a bit of a transition going from one to the other mm. it's um, it, it's like you get so into the groove of drawing, like your your pencil point is like in the groove of a record or something. Okay. Like the needle of a record, and it, it's hard to get out. <laughs> and going to clay, it just it, sometimes it um, yeah, it's hard shifting gears. Mm. But when, once you Whatever you get into, you. Um, I'm just speaking for myself. I can't put this on anyone else. But right. um, it's like it, I can see it in my drawings. I'll have an image of something, and then I'll do a variation on the image, maybe in the same frame, and then a whole collection of them, and maybe they could change shapes and almost be like animation going across the, the page, going from big to small, a whole succession of the same image. and mm -hmm. uh, Or just um, different impressions of the same face or body or whatever. And uh, I don't know, it, there's, there's overlap of things like that between different mediums mm -hmm. and 
I I get obsessed with things. Like a, a couple of years ago, it was I was gathering up sticks, little pieces of wood, just tiny twigs, and sorting them out and and making these little buildings for this little town. Uh-huh. That I I had made the roofs for this town after the big heat wave we had here when it got up to 105 oh. back about seven or eight years ago, a lot of my little houses in the garage, little clay houses, were falling apart because of the heat. Because mm-hmm. the the clay is uh, susceptible to melting or right. softening with the heat and. And so I, when I was putting those houses back together, I realized I, I wanted roofs for them, and I started making little shingled roofs, and I worked out a technique where I could, I turned out a whole bunch of these roofs, and I still got them. They haven't been put on anything yet. And, uh-huh. and then a few years later, I started making, with twigs making the frames for the houses to put these roofs on because I made way more roofs than I had houses at the time. The, the, I was trying to repair these little houses and made roofs for them, but then I made more roofs and more and more, and so I got enough for a whole little town, the little town that's in my stories. Okay. The place at the base of the cliffs of the uplands and that old time kind of town. It's called Old Town because that's what it is. It's an old town. Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> and so I'm making all these little structures and then I, I made one that sort of looks like a sled. And there's these mystical sleds in some of my stories that can move without anything pulling them. Okay and they can even fly, and so I, I went into making sleds for a, and this went on for about a month and a half. That's all you were doing is making sleds? Yeah, well, making things out of wood, out of twigs and okay. sticks, and bending things around, making various st- structures. And, uh-huh. uh, and this, then I made, I, I noticed that the, the glue I was using, this, this heavy-duty, fast-acting carpenter's glue. I noticed one little leftover patch of glue looked kind of like a face. Mm-hmm. So I started molding faces out of this glue by just <laughs> painting with with a stylus or whatever a, tw- a tool. Yeah, any point. Just dabbing glue onto the paper in a face pattern, and then when it dries, dab more onto those until you're building it up into contours, like the bulges in a, someone's cheeks or right. their forehead, forehead wrinkles, everything. I, I made comedy and tragedy faces, and I kept, so I did that for a month <laughs> to, until I figured I had enough. Okay. And. It just goes that way. You I just get go obsessive. into little obsessions, and, and it's like the leaf masks. I was out cutting those leaf faces out of the magnolia leaves. I I put some features on some of those leaves with the glue mm-hmm. to to accent their just the cutout uh, appearance of their face with lips and noses and 
uh, eyelids and whatever, and any anything. I, if if I if I do go off on a tangent or switch mediums or techniques, I it takes me a while to get back to where I branched off from because uh -huh. I gotta. I just get fascinated with the look of things and trying new variations on a particular expression or a, a nuance and and it just, that's the way it goes. I just if if I had a manager who knew what they were doing, they would say, "No, today we do this." And if I would could adhere to that discipline, that that'd be great. But yeah. Uh, as is, I'm just kind of flipping around uh, from one thing to another, and just trying to trying to make good use of my time. Yeah, well, it's hard when you're that when you're curious and you want to explore the extent of a medium. You want to see what you could do with the material and how you could integrate it. It would be hard to stop halfway and say like, oh, I'm just going to go back to what I already know. For me, it would be. I'd always want to be. I'd just be more curious to see what else could be done. So maybe that's why the tangents take you far away. But is it? I mean, isn't? I would imagine that's pretty satisfying to do, even even if it feels like there's not enough time for it. I would imagine you're. Oh, that's I, like when you're at your best. You know, in that meditative. When, when I'm when I'm doing something, I'm. It it's it's comforting to be doing something maybe. Mm -hmm. It it takes takes your mind off other things. Mm -hmm. Keep your brain in your hands. You could just think think with think with the things that are creating the worlds. Um, so when you do you feel like the the repetitive nature of animation is that is that do you get into sort of a Zen state, or do you find it tedious, mm. or because some people I think non-animators. No, with animation, I noticed in the earlier years when I was in the seventies, I I began to notice that. Well, you see, there's this the frame counter on the camera, mm -hmm. or it's a footage counter. It was pretty crude on a Bolex. You couldn't see how many frames you had done. You just see how how the foot the footage meter is moving. Okay. And I noticed that I felt I felt better about animating if I quit if I didn't feel like looking at the frame counter. Or I mean the footage count meter. Mm -hmm. Right. If I just if I just do the work and don't worry about how much I'm getting done right i could i i i had the feeling that you're you're animating better when you aren't worrying about how how much time it's taking i think that's got to be true and probably true with music and because anything. it's going to take time no matter what so you you might as well not worry about it that's true um so do you we can wrap up here in a second. Do you, can you talk just a little bit about your graphic novel that's about to come out? Oh. Do you well, it was around the election time, or it was coming up towards the election that I started working on that thing. 
going on two years ago now. Right. And it was just going to be a short thing. I just wanted to get something off my chest. But the more I went along with it, the the deeper I got. I mean, the story was about the candidate was so uh, tangled, and so there were so many things from the past that the media had never gone, had just ignored, mm -hmm. just given this person a free ride, and so I just kept going, and I, I went off on a few things, like I, I brought in characters like Mothman and Wasp Woman, mm -hmm. and threw in a lot of stuff about the Kennedy assassination. You, did you sort of sneak it in there, or is it is it pretty overt? Oh, it's it's blatant. Okay, good. And um, or oh, even things about things like the the Haitian relief funds and what happened to them. How how did that thing go astray? Mm -hmm. And where'd the money go? You have stuff like that included. Oh sure. Oh good. And and the the bearer the bonds which this money is hiding in, and I don't understand high finance or uh, commerce or any of these things at all. I just I was just winging it. I just made up of some outlandish things about uh, schemes being played on the Haitian people, the most vulnerable people in the hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And they, to pick on them, to use them, to, to steal from them, it's just a, it seems totally heartless. So. It is, it's, it's truly rotten. Well, anyway, the, the story goes into a few of those areas, but nothing, nothing provable or substantial. It's just, uh, and and there's things that are just, um, they're they're related in in a way, like things about the Bermuda Triangle, because that's near, the, that's right on the border of the Car Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And the Sargasso Sea and the giant peaches that grow on the bottom of the ocean there because of all the stuff that collects in this, this well, it's the horse latitudes, the Jim Morrison kind of song. Uh -huh. that, uh, and uh, I was dredging up old ancient images from when I was just a kid before I was ever doing animation. Things like an undersea uh, figurehead of a ship, this mysterious woman who looks kind of like the, one of the first Green River victims. Mm. And uh, the ships that are coming up from the bottom of the ocean that get incorporated into a, a new Haitian citadel 
you, you know the Citadel in Haiti? I don't. That, oh, it's up on a hill, it's up on a mountain. They, they, the Haitians, when they got their in, independence, they revolted against the French in the early 1800s. Okay. And then they they built, their king had them build a, a, a citadel mm -hmm. to, so he could be safe from an, an invasion from France. And the invasion never came. The citadel is still there. It's the biggest citadel in the Western Hemisphere. Is it just sitting there vacant or is it? Like it, a memorial well, or a, a museum? It, it, it's a historical place. Okay, it's not like a and decrepit ruin. In, in the story, there's a new another one is being built, but it's a secret. Okay. <laughs> this is all. This is all in the storyline of your. Yeah, of your it's all in the the election story. That's what it's called. Is it, or is oh it? no, it has a different title. Okay. Do you want to give it now, or do you want? Or is that oh, secret too? Fisting with Satan. <laughs> okay. Um, and is there? Does the candidate that you mentioned does have a name beyond oh, the candidate? No, I don't. I don't name. I didn't use real names. Nothing incriminating. I changed, changed the names. Right. Or but does the maybe name I? Hey, hey, I probably slipped up a few times and <laughs> used the real names of some people, but uh -huh. I try not to. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> but it's fairly clear what you're talking about. It sounds oh, like totally <laughs> couldn't be misconstrued. No. Okay, good. And when is it due to come out? Oh, well, maybe next, early next year, okay. maybe February. Great. And then, do you have a follow-up in that same? Well, there's a, about four other graphic novels that I have pretty much completed. It's just that I put them all on hold to do this one. Mm -hmm. Are they part of that same? Are they part of a series? Are they resistance not, based? Not really, but there are some. There's some crossover uh -huh. in a few of them. Oh, my my throat's starting. Okay. To I'd probably well, let's <laughs> let's say let's call it quits then. Um, I really yeah, really appreciate well, you doing this with me. Um, yeah, sure, anytime. Thanks, Bruce. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was a rebroadcast of my interview with Bruce Bickford from August of 2018. Um, I wish that I had some extra bonus content to give you. Um, Bruce wasn't feeling well that day, and it was really kind of him to do the interview at all. He, his throat was sore, and he just wasn't feeling good. Um, but he still let me into his space which i think was a big deal for him and he only knew me through my brother and my friend aaron um so huge thanks to eric and aaron for facilitating this conversation that we had um i would have talked to bruce all night he probably barely <laughs> made it through the time that we that we had um although i'll say this after our interview, um, I drove him to the market to get some some produce, and uh, 
it was a nice long drive and we had a conversation on the way there and we selected, he asked me how to pick good watermelon and I didn't really know, but there were two different types there. So I said, might, might as well get one of each. And um, so he did. And we got some other stuff and drove him back home. And I'm really just, I feel really lucky that I got to spend any kind of time with Bruce. He was a really special guy. Um, I did not know him very well. I don't want to pretend that I did. Um, but I just was lucky. I, I'm, I'm associated with people who know him. So um, may he rest in peace. Uh, a really, really incredible artist. Um, so you can find his work. Uh, pretty much I think everything that's been done is cataloged on Wikipedia. If you just look up Bruce Bickford there. Um, most there are some links and I think most everything if it's not there uh, will be on YouTube you can just find clips of his stuff or full uh, he did almost everything for Baby Snakes the Frank Zappa uh, movie music uh, montage documentary thing whatever I don't know how to frame it quite um, <clears throat> but anyway Bruce's work was is um like nothing else and you should see it even a little bit of it and um i don't know what else to say about him i don't think i'm really qualified to say much more i will say again thank you to eric and to aaron um <clears throat> the music the first two interludes in the episode were my songs that i made for bruce and then the second two the the much more produced and impressive sounding ones were my friend Aaron's band Father Howell um, who have an album they're both from the latest album Wayward Doctrine and you can find it wherever you find music and um, definitely worth a listen it's really beautiful stuff and they have another album before that uh, also worth checking out so anyway um, thanks so much for listening and um, was there anything else oh yeah I'm going to put some pictures on Instagram out spoken underscore podcast um pictures of the first time i met bruce uh way back in 2004 when my brother my daughter my friend bill and myself went to visit him and he was generous enough to show us to walk us all through his garage his double garage full of all his clay old stuff and storage and he had works, he had projects in the works, he had stuff, file boxes full of stories, and he showed us everything and hung out um, with us for a long time. I shared some mate, some yerba mate with him. He hung out with my little toddler daughter who wandered through his house and probably made him really nervous, but he still was cool with it. So anyway, <clears throat> here's to you, Bruce. Um, I made another song today in your honor, and... Um, I wish I could have been, I wish I could have known you more and longer. Uh, so here's to the next life. Uh, see you guys soon. Thanks for listening. Bye.